Hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And um, I hope before the end of the show we'll find um, a uh, audio clip of, of um, Tony Morrison that I've been looking for. I thought I had it uh, uh, in my hands, and uh, it, it turned out uh, uh, to be not the case. Uh, so I don't know uh, when we'll get our hands on it, but hopefully um, Jazz will find something. Because she talked a lot about race and race relations in America, and it couldn't be more timely than as um, she has just passed to uh, use her quote. In the meantime, we're going to talk about um, a lot of other quotes that a guy named uh, Mark Cage, who works for the Historic New Orleans Collection, has been collecting around the city. And also about a live interview that he's going to do this coming Saturday at the new, expanded, beautiful facilities of the Historic New Orleans Collection in the French Quarter on Royal Street. Um, and this is in conjunction with an art show that was put together uh, for the opening of this new, expanded space of 70, count them, 70, big job, uh, living New Orleans uh, visual artists, and um, it's it's just such a beautiful show. I, I really everybody needs to go see it because you want to see the work that's being done in New Orleans. Because I, I think a lot of people probably think that we don't have you know um, national class material here, but we do. We have uh, incredible work that's being done by young, mid career, and older artists, and uh, they're all there. They are. It's a it's a beautiful exhibit it's called Art and Art of the City, um, and uh, we're going to have a special event for Dirty Linen Night. We're not normally open in the evenings, but we're going to be open special for this Saturday, and uh, we're going to be interviewing some of the artists that were a part of the show. Some of the more outspoken ones at that. I know. <laughs> we have uh, Sandra McCormick and uh, Keith Calhoun. And we're going to be interviewing them together. They're a husband and Chandra and Keith. They are uh, quite a team. They uh-huh. really are. And uh, they've done, uh, I think, some of the work that has always um, uh, impacted me the most that they did were, was the work that they did in the uh, prison system here in the state. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. They did a lot of work at Angola. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in the interview. But, you know, they're both from the Ninth Ward. Um, Keith's father was a longshoreman, and so one of his first projects was to document, uh, you know, that that working group mm-hmm. uh, along the river. Many of whom are no longer involved on the river because of containerization. So yeah. it's been, um, you know, kind of a. Uh, I covered a lot of the longshoreman activities when I first came here in the 70s, but. A lot of that's gone away. Yeah, and they actually fell in love in the photo lab. Is that <laughs> Which, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Great story. Sandra had her portrait taken by Keith, and uh, you know she started uh, working for him, doing uh, developing, and then they they just fell in love in the seventies. And so it's a wonderful story of oh, that's two, wonderful two artists story. meeting. Yeah, that's a. Uh, a little bit of love and a little bit of uh, art mm-hmm. <laughs> combined. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm also um, looking forward to Willie Birch and, and uh, my buddy Bob Tannen. I mean, uh, again, Willie in particular, of course, you never know what he's going to say. So that's going to be a trip. Yeah, and we're pairing them together, which, I know. Uh, which is uh, interesting. I couldn't think of two more opposite people, but yet somehow – 
their lives mesh together. Um, and oh, they're very respectful of each other's art, very yeah. much. And so they may be different in um, style and temperament, but uh, in terms of the kind of authenticity and intentionality of their work, yeah. they're very similar. And we'll probably start off the interview by talking about their their childhood. You know, Robert was born in, or raised in a sort of gated community up in New York, and, and Willie was uh, born and raised in the Magnolia Housing Projects. And so just that comparison of life, I think, would be very interesting. And then when Robert was coming to New Orleans uh, in the 60s as a result of his work uh, following Hurricane Camille, um, Willie was headed up to the Northeast. Uh, oh, so I didn't they were realize that. Was, that was that <laughs> yeah. crossing and, paths in the night. Yeah, know? but then they also had lots of intersecting interests, like they were both, uh, you know, critically involved or inspired by the 1984 World's Fair, which we'll talk a little bit about on Saturday. Um, and the events from from five to eight, we're going to interview Sandra and Keith first from about five to six thirty, mm-hmm. and then. After that, we're going to interview Willie and, and Robert together. Um, and we've got a great cafe, uh, which uh, just opened. We're all very excited about that. At, oh, I didn't know about a, that. Yeah, Cafe Core, and it'll be open as well. So um, you can get a wonderful cappuccino or uh, you know something to eat and uh, come and listen to, to them talk. So the, the Historic New Worlds Collection has such a wide um, or – Broad oeuvre. I mean, yeah. you, you you just you deal with just about everything uh, about the city, and um, art is part of it, but not uh, exclusively. And um, the oral histories that you've done um, also kind of cover the waterfront, so to speak. It, it does. When I first um, came to the collection, I was a curator of manuscripts. We collected old letters and diaries and things like that. But, of course, that's not a common thing people do now. They don't write letters to each other. They don't keep diaries. Um, And so my focus shifted to oral histories or Mm -hmm. collecting uh, personal narratives. Mm -hmm. And it really got underway post-Katrina, where we did a large um, documentary project on uh, what happened in the weeks following Katrina. Mm -hmm. And we did about 500 uh, interviews. Uh, wow, with, uh, I didn't know yeah, that. With first responders, uh, did w- with the New Orleans Police Department, New Orleans Fire oh, Department, EMS. Wow. The, all the first responders. Yeah, just to mm-hmm. give them uh, a safe place to share what they experienced during that mm. time. And so that must have been difficult, Mark. That must have been emotional. It, it was. Um, you know, it's just uh, so many of them uh, wanted to share their story and. And sharing it was a way for them to try to make sense of their experience. You know, they experienced so many ugly and senseless things during that time that I think um, sitting down and uh, recording that uh, made them feel better. And it's created, I think, the best um, archive of what happened here um, in the weeks following Katrina um, that's out there. And we've transcribed all the interviews and we've cataloged them and they're archived at our, our research center. Give me, give me just a couple samples uh, in a sense of, of some of the things that um, kind of stayed with you in your mind mm-hmm. about the experiences that you heard about through those interviews. I, I interviewed the members of a disaster medical assistance team from California. And they were stationed at the New Orleans Arena, 
um, uh, during the, the aftermath, at least early on. And they ended up, a few of their doctors were attacked, um, and they had to, to leave that area. And uh, they just felt so guilty about abandoning the people there. Um, but mm. they felt they couldn't keep their, their own workers safe. And so they left people without medical care. And there, they, they, I think there was, you know, people say there were maybe five people killed at the, at the Superdome, but they all claimed that there were many more mm. um, than that. Um, mm. So they were very frustrated about how the events were portrayed uh, later in the media. Um, and then they ended up uh, going back to the New Orleans airport, and they talked about uh, helping people there. Um, all the people um, laid out on the baggage claim uh, area. So yeah. th those images really haunt me. And there was a chaplain in particular that at the arena was in charge of the expectant room, which is a place where they sent people that were beyond their ability to help. And so he would just sort of be with them, um, and they were um, thought to probably pass away. Um, and they never knew what happened to those people. So there's mm. so many unanswered questions um, in the aftermath yeah. of Katrina that, you know, as a community, um, I think just to get through it, when we came back, we just had to move on and move forward. And uh, we didn't really spend the time to reflect. I think it, it just, the time needed optimism um, and mm. uh, yeah, we had to convince ourselves that it was going to be okay, uh -huh. and we were going to uh, be able to continue to live here. Yeah. Of course, now we're faced with a whole different set of existential threats with climate change, and yeah. um, I'm sure that'll be part of your interview uh, on Saturday since um, Tannen seems to be so um, hooked on it, um, the latest example of which being his his um, lifeboat that he plunked down on Chile Street. Did you see it? Were you down there? I, I saw it. You and did? I think yeah. it's, it's wonderful. And um, what, what struck me in preparing for my interview with Robert, I ha I've had a chance to interview him in the past, and um, I got to go to your house a yeah. number of times and, and uh, be with you all. And um, what struck me is how that environmental theme has been with him through his entire life um, from the time he was a from child. From Coney Allen. Yeah. From Coney Allen days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's not the only one. And I think one of the interesting things right now is that a lot of artists are, uh, artists often uh, relate to issues that are important to um, civic society, to, uh, to people in general in, throughout history. And, and even even if in um, many early earlier centuries, it doesn't seem as if there's that much social comment. But if, if you become more familiar with the work, which from those days was very pretty and very deliberately, you know, whether it was landscapes or figurative, um, explicit and not abstract. Um, but then when you learn more about what they were doing, there was just an article about uh, Manet and his early days and his later days, I don't know if you saw it, but it's right now it's online in the New York Times. And he's one of, considered to be one of the leaders of the whole, you know, um, uh, it, it was really in the 19th century, the, the modernization of art and the changes. Um, but he was highly criticized for the Odalisque that he did, this nude. 
um, that he did. And uh, so he kind of retreated from it and started doing things like flowers and fruits. But even in the way he dealt with the flowers and fruits, he was kind of, there was an undercurrent of comment that you had to be familiar with what his work had been like and how it was evolving to really be aware of it. But now I think, you know, artists are becoming much more um, explicit mm-hmm. in calling your attention to issues that we have to pay attention to. I mean, if we don't pay attention to these environmental threats, you know, we're pretty much doomed to some people who are saying we got to wake up and deal with it and hopefully um, politics will shift enough to... Uh, keep us on track. Right now we're kind of off track, yeah. <laughs> you might say. But um, who are some of the most interesting interviews you've ever done? Oh, well, we've done, since since we started really in Katrina, we've done about a thousand um, interviews. Um, and so we've done different topics. Um, you know, after, you know, after we finished the Katrina project, we realized that a lot of the things that would naturally come to the museum, um, you know, people's diaries, their uh, papers and things Even like that. photographs. Yeah, were, were lost in, in the flooding. Yeah. And so um, we decided we needed to be more proactive in collecting these personal stories, which mm-hmm. really is the, the backbone of any historical record are these individual perspectives of what's going on around us. And so... We just started uh, interviewing people, and they range, you know, from people like Harry Connick Sr. to lifetime inmates at Angola that were from New Orleans. Um, we've inter- interviewed artists like Mignon Faget and Robert Tannen. Uh, we've done individual projects on uh, the community out in New Orleans East, the Vietnamese community, and we had a translator for that that helped us get the stories of the. Uh, elders in that community, some of them that had never learned English. Um, And we worked with Mary, Queen of Vietnam Church, and they were very helpful in uh, uh, getting the cooperation of of many of that community's elders. And we did a wonderful project of interviewing uh, them. Um, We've recently been working on a project on the African-American civil rights movement in the 60s. So we've interviewed about 30 Individuals who were involved in that struggle. In fact, um, did you did you, did you interview Matt Suarez yet? No, no. But be sure to put him on your list. Yeah. Because um, he was not one of the a higher profile, better known, but he was very much in the middle of all that, and he's still around, and he's he's not active in that sense anymore. He's been more or less running daycare centers, uh-huh. but um, he's an interesting uh, interview. Yeah, I had a wonderful interview this morning with uh, Betty Daniels, um, mm-hmm. and uh, she was a member of CORE, the Congress on uh, Racial Equality, mm-hmm. and um, her daughter, and she drove down from Cincinnati. Um, she lives there now, um, and she wanted to show her daughter where she you know, grew up and mm-hmm. uh, the city and everything, but she was just fascinating, you know, just a, a, a young girl, and she was at um, uh, UNO at that time. And um, you know, she involved herself with CORE and was a freedom rider, um, had a horrible incident in Poplarville during one of the freedom rides where, um, you know, the mob with the pickup truck had taken off with some of the CORE members and that she uh, ran to a phone booth um, to alert Aretha Castle Haley that this had happened. And then Aretha Castle Haley called Bobby Kennedy and, and told him what happened, and then he threatened uh, the mayor of Poplarville that 
they'd send federal troops if any of them were harmed. Wow, um, what a story. Yeah, and she was very yeah, that's the kind of story that you came up with. And I guess right now, um, you know, many people are, are characterizing what we're going through right now as a kind of second civil rights uh, era, although I'm not sure it ever um, actually stopped, right? It, it, it's just going through different phases, but certainly we're in a, a very challenging time racially, so I imagine you're going to be doing some interviews with uh, people involved in the present day movements. Yeah, eventually. Uh, mm -hmm. we, do, we just hope to, to make a sustained effort to talk to people in New Orleans, uh, record their own narratives, um, transcribe them, catalog them, and they'll be available for historians for generations. So I wish I had the luxury of the hour and a half that you're going to have with your artists on yeah. Saturday night, but um, I have two more guests and only an hour. So um, I just want you to repeat the details on um, Saturday night's program with the artists' interviews and uh, tell people where to park because, you know, the French Quarter, a lot of folks in the city don't really want to go to the French Quarter. Yeah, I usually park um, – down on North Peter Street. There's a couple of lots right down by the river. Okay. So I think that's a good place to park. You have to pay to yeah. park. And, of course, in the quarter that can be expensive. But it's dirty linen night, so it should be a fun event. Oh, that's fun right. Event. right. And, uh, there'll be a that's why you moved into the evening to yeah. be in con And dirty linen night in the French Quarter is, is another one that's a real kick. I mean, yeah. as much as white linen night is, is a lot of fun on uh, Julia Street, this one is great, too, because you kind of – Hop from gallery to gallery, yeah. yeah. And we're going to be open at 4.30, um, so feel free to come a little bit early. The event starts at 5, um, and we'll probably go on till about 8 o'clock. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll probably take a break midway through mm -hmm. um, and uh, give everyone a chance to get something at the cafe. Um, we have to... Yeah, make the cafe work, right? <laughs> Mark Cave, um, he's somebody who uh, has had the pleasure of meeting a lot of folks from New Orleans, and um, some of the more interesting ones will be part of the program this Saturday night as part of Dirty Little Night in the French Quarter. Um, you should definitely check in on this. This is going to be a lot of fun. And um, we, we're gonna, that was Saturday, and now we're going to talk about Sunday because we have more wonderful doings on Sunday. And, um, Mark, you come back. Okay. We, we have to have, you know, we have to talk more about other things that, um, okay. that you're going, uh, 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 developing and other ideas. And, and maybe sometime you can come on and do an interview on my show. I'd love oh, that. That would be fun. That Thank would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jean. Love the idea. Thank you. So now we have joining us a guy of, of, of also many talents, a guy named Jeff Becker, who um, I think of um, as being uh, kind of primarily uh, theater-oriented, but um, I know that uh, what he does in theater, on the other hand, is more visual, at least in part. Uh, he's going to better inform me because I'm going to let him talk about it. Uh, but on this Sunday, which is the last day of the summer Sundays at Crevasse 22 River House, which is a mouthful, but it is absolutely a wonderful place in the city, um, about 25 minutes down river in uh, St. Bernard, um, right on the river, uh, next to a beautiful bayou that became kind of a lake as a result of the crevasse of 1922, which is how the site got its name, because there was a natural breach in 1922 right at that site that turned the bayou into kind of a lake. And there's all kinds of mythology about what's at the bottom of that lake, including allegedly a train car 
They haven't they haven't hooked it yet and pulled it up, but it's it's supposed to be down there. We'll find out sometime soon. But um, I asked Jeff to come in and help us with a little project because we do all these arts activities as part of the summer Sundays um, that the Creative Alliance of New Orleans does with um, uh, Sydney Torres and uh, Roberta Burns' trust that gives us the ability to use that property. And um, one of the uh, things that we had recently was a show of work of paintings, beautiful landscapes, but with these very exquisitely painted but nonetheless threatening monsters in them uh, as metaphors for the challenges to the environment. All of the shows down there have something to do with the environment. And um, so I asked Jeff to come work with some of our visitors and pull some materials just out of the woods that are right next to that property and build a monster. And it was it's it's beautiful what they built and fragile looking and the son of a gun made it through Barry and how many flooding rains have we had since then? About at least three. Yeah. And it's so far still up. Now, you know, we'll see what happens. Is it going to be up for Sunday? But if not, we'll just do another one. But um, and so we're going to dress it. And Jeff's in charge. So, Jeff, <laughs> tell me a little bit about the idea of building a, a new sculpture out of just branches out of the woods. Great. Thanks for having me on, Jean. Um, I'm, I am a theater artist, and you know, but I, I do have a sculpture background. In fact, I have a show in the New Orleans collection. I'm one of the artists represented there. But... A lot of my work is outdoor work. Which New Orleans collection? The one he was just talking yes. about? Oh, um, okay. So I'm in, in that show as well. Okay, we'll look for you. It's an, it's an old piece, but it was made shortly after Katrina. But most of my theater work almost is exclusively outdoor projects. And uh-huh. I work um, you know, with objects and things that I find from nature quite often. I'm working mm. on a project right now in Kentucky uh, about uh, fracking right now, and when oh, you yeah. so when you asked me to come out and pull some things out of the woods and make a monster, I was like, okay, that was that wasn't a strange idea no, that was, to you um, at all. Yeah, I think I think um, the person who recommended me, um, you said, do you know anybody who can pull things out of the woods and make a monster? And <laughs> my friend Nick said, yeah, I know just the guy. Um, <laughs> right. So yeah, so it, it's it's I, I love working with community. I love uh, I, I love Crevasse 22, and I, I really enjoy when I go out there. And I think it was a, it's a good place to bring people to. And there's uh, so much that you can do out there. And I think having people come and make work and not just see it is is really great. And I was I had the pleasure of working with Jonathan Mayer, who is the artist who's uh, the paintings you were talking about at this uh, summer camp. So we were kind of, I had just met him, so we were kind of hanging out a little bit anyway. So it was fun to work with him and, and just kind of do what we did. I can't believe it's still standing. I mean, literally. I when I came out there after Barry, I said, what? <laughs> I mean, we really literally just kind of leaned things up against each other. I had like one piece of string. I said, I better put a piece of string here, and I, I couldn't believe it's still still up. I'm excited to see it's it. It's really interesting. Yeah. But what, um, what about that? You, you said that you really liked the site. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't usually talk about it very much because we talk about the art. But tell me what it is about the site that that reaches you. Well, I think you know that just uh, you know Saint Bernard Parish in general is just you know it's it's sinking and it's it's, it's slowly disappearing down there. And we we did a, a a big show down there a few years ago called Cry You One, and we you know we've connected with this kind of Saint Bernard community there. And I think that people don't realize that you know that. 
you know, with as we lose land in South Louisiana, we're losing culture. And there's, you know, the Islanio culture in St. Bernard. There's there's the whole culture of the people who've grown up there for generations. So and it's really Native American culture. The Native really. American culture. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to get people down there to see it. And, and you know, and I think that Crevasse is one of those places that can bring is a, is a, a meeting point for people to come to see not just creative projects, but a place to, you know, engage in dialogue about what's happening in South Louisiana and St. Bernard. Uh, but one of the things that I find about it, and, and, and even on the days when I've uh, uh, basically gone down to function as a sitter for um, times when we didn't have any fancy events going on, but we wanted to be open, and it was just really quiet and so peaceful. Yeah. That's one of the things about it that I really enjoy. Yeah, it's it's really it was nice just wandering through the woods. It's it's a really great place. You know, it's got you know it's along the lake. There's a big kind of feel with the art in it. There's places to walk around. It's you know it's a, it's a nice you know, just nice place to visit. What um, tell me tell me a little bit more about your work and uh, what you aim to communicate and and to do with it, and give me a couple other examples of the kind of things you've done. So are you talking about what we're uh, doing on Sunday? or uh, No, in general, in general, your sculptures. Well, I, I think, you know, a lot of my work is tied up in environmental justice and and really concerned about how how our impact on the land is really impacting our future. And uh, the, the show that we've done, the show, we've done a few shows in various sites in, in Louisiana about basically the oil company's impact on the land and uh, you know, cutting ca- canals like Mr. Go and how that's affected, how it's affected the central wetlands, which are, you know, pr- pretty much decimated. And then taking these shows and traveling in places as far as Vermont and uh, upstate New York and uh, Tennessee and, and, like, trying to find ways to connect what's happening in Louisiana and how how we're dealing with our environment here and how what are the challenges that people are facing in other places. So even though they're different, people still understand that the abuse, the, the attack on the environment is, is real and it's having real serious repercussions and people are starting to see that. I was surprised to um, read, uh, I, I guess probably in the New York Times, which is what I read every day, um, uh, South Shore of, of Jersey is really uh, suffering a very similar subsidence and flooding, constant flooding that we're experiencing. And when I started to read the article, at first I thought they were talking about New Orleans, and they said, what, wait, it's South Jersey. Yeah. And, um, and, and so we know that it's happening in coastal areas um, um, all over. So, um, yeah, it's an important uh, um part of the universe that you're touching on. But how do you do that through your work? Well, I, like I work in community, you know, so I, I like, for instance, the project I'm working on in Kentucky, which is, you know, I mean, any any time you uh, any the extractive industries always, you know, they they extract things from the land and they change the land and and people live on that land. So they invertedly change culture. And the piece that I'm doing right now is called Ezel. Ballad of a Landman, and it's it's in the mountains of Kentucky, and it's it's basically the the oil companies will come in and get people to sell their land rights, and they when they find people who you know a lot of these people have no money and they they take advantage of that situation and they find people from that community to convince their neighbors to sell their land too, mm-hmm. kind of like making the deal with the devil. So that's what that's what a landman is. So working there sounds like the smugglers and and the um 
traffic, the sex traffickers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that people are recruiting. people are trapped, and um, so the way that I work is I, I go there and I, I work with the community there and like you know find out what they're dealing with, and I, I work with them to kind of pull things out of the woods, or you know I have I have design ideas because I you know essentially a, a set designer. Or I call it, I call myself an environmental enhancer because there's already a set there. Uh, but you know, we, you know, I'm very open to how they see their land and, and listening to these stories. It is, it's kind of, it's kind of like visual storytelling. Like they, they tell me what they think about their land by what they make. And so I, I kind of start from there and try to, you know, because I come into places with not, not a lot of agency. I have a lot of interest, and you know, I'm, my intentions are, are good, but. I don't have agency to go in and make comments about places, what's going on in, in places like Kentucky. So I work with people who do have that agency, and I, I let them lead the way and more or less empower them with the creative skills they already have to, to, to do the work. Kind of, um, uh, yeah, enhance and help them. Uh, where are you from? I'm originally from uh, Washington, D.C. and mm-hmm. grew up in suburban Maryland. Mm-hmm. But How I've long lived- have you been in these parts? Probably about 25 years. Yeah. So you half my half my life I've been in, in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah. My heart's been in Louisiana since my sister moved here in in the early, in the 70s. But I, uh-huh. I finally moved here as an adult. Um, so I've been here for quite a while. Quite a while. Well, I remember you from our Colton days uh-huh. when we yeah. first uh, when I first met you when we opened the studio at Colton right after the storm and yep. and gave a home to some of the returning artists. Yeah, that was an important. Uh, it was. Time. It was. Yeah. I mean, it, it's finding community in times of turmoil are really important. I think the Colton School is one of those places that just brought a lot of people together. And like you're like, okay, it's going to be all right. You know. On the other hand, I sure wish we could have kept it, but I understand that we also needed to do uh, bring a school back for children. Yeah. And we oh, knew, and we knew that was going to happen when we went in, so it I wasn't know. a surprise. There was right. there, there was no illusions to that. So, no. well, um, you know, we we hoped, but yeah, we had our fantasies. But we were, <laughs> yeah. you know, we were told. So, um, Chess, I just want to find out um, how much time I have to leave for a combination of Anna Timmerman and um, Tony Morrison. Um, just w- bear with me, folks, for a minute. I just want to make sure that – what is it, 20, uh, 25 minutes I need total? Okay. So that means uh, oh <laughs> now we're, we're – okay. Um, Jeff, so here's the thing, uh, folks. This is, a, this is a very interesting character. I wish I had more time with him today. But um, uh, he is going to be at Crevasse 22 River House. That's what it's called, Crevasse 22, based on the, the big – natural breach in the river levee there in 1922, which was before the big pl- flood of 27, and it was the town fathers in New Orleans. I tell this story so many times. Maybe you in the audience have already heard this, but um, the town fathers in New Orleans said, oh, let's just go explode it down there in St. Bernard again. So they did, and they flooded St. Bernard again, but it was bad science. It should have been above the city. Ultimately, it was a breach above the city that saved New Orleans in 1927. Mm-hmm. So there's all that history. They led Alleged train car down in the in the lake. I don't know about that. A lot of sculptures in the sculpture garden, and visual art in the house itself. Beautiful work by um, really interesting artists that I think that um, that you'll enjoy. So I, I encourage you uh, to come and and uh, work with Jeff. Yeah. So that's the thing. Jeff's going to go probably in the woods and pull more stuff out to enhance the sculpture. And so. 
Um, and we have mosquito spray, and we yes. have, you know, there are a few of those around. Um, but it's uh, it's really it's a it's a beautiful process, and just as he said, to to participate in making art. Yeah, and experiencing this beautiful place. And you're used to doing that with working with others to. Um, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I do. So so don't be intimidated and plan on joining him Sunday. From noon to five, we're out, we're out there for a while. And by the way, all you have to do is go down St. Claude Avenue to to St. Bernard Highway, and you keep going until you get to the green grocery with a purple and pink snowball stand on the right. You make a little U-E there to get onto Sarah Lane, and you're there. It's 25 minutes. It's very easy. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. Absolutely. I'll see you Sunday. See you Sunday. All right. Okay, so now two things are going to happen, guys. Um, first of all, Anna Timmerman, who is so full of knowledge about green stuff and planting and dealing with this dry to wet that we're dealing with, with storm prevention, with um, growing things in the summer, you name it. She's an expert in it. She works with the Ag Center. I did an interview with her uh, just the other day, and so we're going to run that. And then we're going to close out the show with a little piece of – um, Tony Morrison talking about race, and um, she has she has a lot of copy uh, that she's done on this, and I don't know if we found the one that I would have loved the most, but I'm sure whatever we Jazz uh, put his hands on is going to be informative and moving. So um, I'll have a little goodbye moment at the end, but uh, I want you now to enjoy listening to Anna Timmerman and then Tony Morrison. So I have Anna Timmerman here with me today who is my favorite expert on um, the green world, so to speak, the, our plants, our trees, and our gardens, and anything to do with the ground and the dirt. And um, she works with LSU, and uh, you can read her column in, um, is it Inside Out? Uh, we are no longer doing the column since the merger. So oh. Daniel is going to do it until he wants to retire, and then they're going to bring us back. Okay. Oh, okay. Yep. All right. Mm-hmm. At any rate, um, you know, through LSU, you can find Anna, and um, she knows what she's talking about. So we're going to talk about a few things today because we're in the middle of the summer. Uh, that's one factor. Secondly, we're having a lot of dry to wet, so <laughs> that's another factor. Then we're uh, t- we have storm season coming, so that's another factor. So we're going to talk talk about all those subjects. So dry to wet. Um, I, I know that uh, I learned sometime in history that sometimes when it's been very dry and then it suddenly gets very wet, that the roots of, of, of plants don't love that. What's that all about? Yeah, they don't love sitting in water. Um, and especially after a period of drought, it can open up a whole bunch of problems. Um, first of all, roots need to breathe. They do take in oxygen through the root hairs. So once that soil becomes so saturated, like it does this time of year with the heavy rainfall, you know, that can really smother certain plants. Um, it can also invite in um, root rot pathogens, which we have a lot of them, Phytophthora being a really common one in the area. And hot, humid conditions can really be conducive to those kind of infections. And the rainfall does not help, especially when it's so regular. Um, going from dry to wet to it can cause a lot of your citrus fruit to actually split. And we get I've a lot seen, of calls uh, about citrus that. falling. Yeah, yep. Oh. Yep, it can so that's what's happening is that dry to wet. Yeah, yep. And uh, irregular so, rainfall impacts a lot of fruits and vegetables. Um, the plants will actually shed what they can't support, you know, decrease soil oxygen, too much moisture. 
it stresses them, so they end up shedding a lot of their crop. So what do we do? Well, unfortunately, we live in New Orleans, and uh, this seems to be the new normal. Um, you know, even a few years ago, we weren't nearly getting the rains like we do now, um, where people are scared to move and leave their houses if there's even a little bit of rain. So, you know, the best thing to do would be to plant natives. That's a good alternative. Use native tree species in your landscape, native shrubs. Um, with your fruit trees, if you are planning on planting new fruit trees, we do recommend planting them into a berm of soil. So you build the soil up to a height of about 12 to 18 inches, and then you plant your tree into that. And that's what our commercial orchards do down in Plaquemines Parish, and it's quite successful because they have a lot of flood issues out there. But what it does is it keeps that root zone up above any flood water or any saturated soil, but still able to tie into the larger soil network. What's the best way to build a berm? Um, well, if it's just in your yard, uh, shovel, or you can bring in bags of topsoil, just regular old topsoil, amend it like you would if you were planting the tree directly into the ground. Um, and then you do want to edge it somewhat for the first few years, just so it doesn't wash away. Edge it means what? Put some kind of uh, some barrier or, to yeah, keep it? Yeah, some sort of barrier to keep it in place uh -huh. um, while it's compacting and getting in place. Uh -huh. So, yeah. Well, that sounds great for a little garden. Mine? <laughs> <laughs> now, who knew when I got this property in the 70s and I thought, wow, this is great. My dogs can run around. <laughs> it was going to be so much work. Okay. Um, anything else on what to drive? Um, well, Dry to wet, I mean. You can also work to um, improve the stormwater retention on your property. So rain gardens are becoming really, really popular. Uh, there's a lot of good A rain garden is essentially digging kind of a swale yeah, where yeah. the water can sort of it like collects. pond. Yeah, and right. it, it collects away from hopefully your other plants. Yeah. And it would be fil filled with species that really like wet feet. So Louisiana iris is one that we see people use. But irises require a lot of sunlight. They do. And yep. my garden does not have a tremendous amount of sunlight. That's right. Mm -hmm. So what else can you grow in a swale that would... Ferns. Ferns, Ferns would do fantastic in, okay. a, in a sort of shady swale environment. Uh -huh. um, there's a number of things that grow naturally under cypress swamps, so they're not getting that like full. Like what? Uh, lizard's tail is a really great one. Lizard um, tail is a fern. It's actually a broadleaf, um, uh -huh. so it makes a nice little white flower spike. Uh, button bush, that's a fantastic little shrub that can uh, get a little taller, but that's a really great one as well. Um, they make a dwarf... Um, Yopon holly, those love wet feet as well. Um, dwarf wax myrtle, even. That's something that grows naturally out in the environment. But Dwarf what? Wax myrtle. Wax myrtle, yep. okay. And it's kind of like a boxwood analog, um, but it works quite well um, in those kind of saturated, heavy soils. Similar to a boxwood. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like the idea of the ferns in particular. The mm -hmm. only trouble with ferns, I, I've decided, okay, my Chinese fan palms took over my garden so much as we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's even more shade than ever. And I said, okay, ferns are the solution. The thing is you put in one little fern mm -hmm. and I'm sure it's going to spread. They but will spread, yeah. The native I, holly fern especially, people use it as a ground cover. Um, so it does fill in areas, which can be good or bad, depending on your landscape and what you're trying to accomplish. I want a lot of ferns, and that's my problem. <laughs> I mean, I bought about a dozen ferns, and it says plop here, plop there, plop <laughs> there, and I, I need a lot more than just a dozen ferns. Yeah, well, they will spread okay. the first year they promise, creep, and then they leap. <laughs> so. Come on and leap, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome to leap. 
Okay, great uh, advice on that. Now let's deal with um, our second issue is storm season. Yes. So, I mean, I know enough to pick up my lawn furniture mm-hmm. and clear out dead branches all over the place, but I can't afford to go up and, you know, cut branches out of the trees and so mm-hmm. and so. What are some of the uh, what are what are some of your recommendations as we approach um, the hurricane season? So a big approach. One that, we're in uh, it. We're but, in it. Yeah, yeah we certainly we kind of <laughs> almost had, had one, run. right? Yeah, right. Um, the big one that I tell people to do is um, your potted plants can really become a projectile in high winds, or they can blow over and damage the plants. Um, if you are able to, it's always a good idea to protect your potted plants. Bring down your hanging baskets. A lot of people have big hanging ferns. Thing of that, things of that nature, um, they really can become airborne in the right situation, or they can be damaged very easily mm-hmm. by high wind or, or rain conditions. Mm-hmm. So if you have a covered porch area or garage, it can be a good idea to just kind Get of them stow in. them away for a while. Bring them in. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. Um, if you have a vegetable garden uh, and it floods, you don't want to harvest or eat anything that touched that flood water. That's a big question we get. You know, even not with hurricanes, but just the regular flooding we've been getting. Uh, Flood water is full of a lot of contaminants, including raw sewage, other feces. It's not great. It's a toxic sludge, toxic soup. You don't want to be eating that. So any tomatoes, lettuce, anything that was touching that, you do want to pull up. You can compost it just fine, um, but you don't want to be eating that. (laughs) Well... You can compost it so you're still getting those toxins if you're composting with if it. If you're composting correctly and it gets to the right temperature, around 140 degrees, uh, it it'll burns kill out most the bad of the stuff. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. Although I, that's not something I do a lot. <laughs> I have a compost pile out there, but uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Certainly. Um, okay. Um, now, I raised the issue with you about palms because I have a palm farm. It started with one little teeny palm from a five and dime. Remember those? That's how long we've had it since 45 years (laughs) ago. And it's now above my two story house. I don't know how many feet high my house is, but our our ceilings are 50 feet. Yeah. Yeah. We're about our, our ceilings are pretty high. So (laughs) it's way up there. And then we even remember we had that frost uh, and snow, that freak snow in 90. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we lost our palms in the front of the house there. They were gone and then they came back and now they're over the top of the house. So is there anything to be done about getting palms not to grow so tall? Uh, Unfortunately, it's genetic, and uh, the growth point in palms is always at the crown. It's in that top of the palm. So that's where it's sending out those new fronds, and that's where all that new growth is coming from. So even selectively pruning, there's no way you can stop nature. Um, Choose the right palm for the right space. Windmill palms, they love to go straight up. It takes them a while, but they do get 40 or 50 feet tall, as you've found, and they're prolific. They love to make babies. They pop up everywhere. And My August, fan yes. palms are, are very baby-making. Yes. Yep. If I had to count all baby palm babies in my yard, I'll bet you anything it's over, I don't know, 30, 40, I 50. Yeah. yeah. And August is actually a terrific time to plant any species of palm. Um, I know we want to talk about what to plant in August. Summer okay. is Let's do that. a great time to plant all kinds of palms, um, you know, queen palms, canary island date palm. Uh, sagos, cabbage palms, Washingtonian palms. There's a whole lot of them available at the garden centers right now. And if you plant now, they have time to get established before that cold weather sets Let, in. Let's do that again. Queen. 
Queen palms, um, they are somewhat, you know, finicky when it comes to cold weather and frost. We did see a lot of people lose them a number of years ago. Oh, yeah, in that remember last that. big freeze. Uh -huh. yep, yeah, and they're still around. Um, the Canary Island date palms are subjected to a couple of diseases, too. So they're also very slow around. growing, aren't they're they? They're very slow. Yep. And yeah. some of them down Esplanade Avenue were planted by the Jesuits many years ago. That's how slow they are. So wow. they're several hundred years old. Um, but if you're looking to add palms to your landscape rather than remove them, which sounds like you're trying to remove some, maybe. Oh, I'm not going to remove them. But <laughs> I mean, if let, let's say if I had a, a, a tree where I took out some of the fronds, mm -hmm. won't we get some fronds growing from below? Uh, no, actually, the more you remove, the more it grows from that very top. Uh -oh. Yep, and it's actually called a spear leaf. That very first kind of shoot out of the top of the crown is called the spear leaf and then that'll unfurl into the new fronds but it is a good idea um, to trim them up we call it limbing it up you remove those lower fronds and you get that nice trunk exposed and it's just a nice more uniform shape as well but if you're looking for a wilder look you wouldn't do that <laughs> i'm beginning to get the feeling yeah. that the palms are um they are in control they're in control of your house. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else can we plant in the summer? Uh, well, there's some hot weather annuals you can still pop in right now. Um, they're starting to offer them at the nurseries again. You know, we had kind of a lag during July into, you know, the hotter months. But you can get definitely some color into your gardens now. Some that we recommend are moss rose, which is portulaca. It's really nice. I love portulaca, but that's another mm -hmm. one that really likes the sun. It really loves sun. You better have sun. Yep. Uh, yeah. Another one. I planted really a bunch of them, and not, and not much is much. happening. Yeah. I had a neighbor in the Bronx where I grew up. She, we had a garden behind our our house, and and she was from Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. She knew what she was doing. That whole garden was covered with portulacas, and oh, I've always gorgeous. loved them ever since. Yeah. But I can't grow them in my garden. Yeah, too much shade. Another much one shade. that likes sun is the Mexican heather. And uh, that's one that blooms almost 12 months out of the year. I've not seen it not bloom. That's not that one that we have out front. That's petunia, right? That's Mexican, Mexican petunia. petunia. Yeah, yeah, that does quite well in dappled shade, even, yeah. even into full yeah. shade. And there are some sterile cultivars. A big complaint I've heard about the Mexican petunia is once you have it, it's everywhere. Yeah. A lot of people really love that. It's a great I have no problem with plant. that, yeah. I love it, too. It's very low maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're looking for something a little more manageable, they have bred some more dwarfed or compact Mexican petunias that won't spread quite so crazy. You know, I love roses. Mm -hmm. um, and I was recommended to the Peggy Martin, which is supposed to be yeah, like very famous. Yeah. I planted it in a garden in a property that we had in the Ninth Ward that we had to give up. It was just too mm -hmm. much that we had to deal with. Um, but it never, it did well for like, you know, it's, it's post-nursery days and mm -hmm. then the following year. Nada. Yeah. Peggy Martin is one of the better ones to plant, so it might just be where it was placed. Um, but that rose made it through Katrina in a lot of gardens, and that's why it's so resilient. So it can actually take those wet conditions and floodwaters. Does it like the summer? I mean, is, is that something that, I mean, a lot of roses don't really love the heat. Yeah, it doesn't really love the heat. It does bloom in late spring, and then it kind of takes a step back. That's a great time to give it some fertilizer, let it do its thing. Um, but I've seen them even grow to the top of houses. They get quite big. Wow. Um, and Peggy Martin actually lives 
pretty close to here out in Laplace, and she's the one. Who oh, she's still it. around. She's still. I've around. got to have her come on yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. But she's fantastic. That's a great rose. We recommend it because it's very low maintenance. It's resistant to the fungal problems. That's and what it's I was gorgeous. told. Yeah. yeah. What other roses? Uh, what What roses bloom during the summer? I know knockout. Yeah. But knockout, I don't know. It's just Everyone's boring got to knockout, me. Right? I know. What What else can we do? So knockout is being phased out, which I'm not too really sad about. why and, uh, because it's been so used. Saturated People the market. Kinda, yeah. Kind of tired of it. So there's yeah. a new series of very low-maintenance um, summer-blooming roses called Drift Roses. Drift? Yep. Okay. Drift Roses. And they don't get quite as leggy. Um, they have sort of a lower growth habit. They're very well-behaved, which people tend to like. And they come in a lot of colors, my favorite being called Popcorn, which is sort of a yellowy, apricot-colored bloom. And they fragrance. Even more. I only want they roses have, that have fragrance. They have fragrant cultivars. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that a lot of plant breeders are trying to get back because we lost the, the I know with the tea roses. roses yeah. yeah. And you know the only ones that really consistently still have a lot of fragrance are the purpley ones. Mm -hmm. So like yeah. a something I remember something called Silver Spoon. I think mm -hmm. it is. Okay, I'm not familiar Unbelievably with that one. Yeah. fragrant. But again, I don't have. I'm just, I'm not, I always tell people, I'm great at watering and we <laughs> weeding. I'm terrible at planting or pruning. Okay. And roses have to be pruned. They and do. And I don't know how yeah. to prune them. Yeah, and it depends on the type of rose, too, when you would bloom, or when you would prune it. The once blooming roses, you prune after they're done. So, like, Peggy Martin is a really good example. She's done by May or June. Go ahead and give her a haircut. She comes back the next year. Um, with the ever-blooming roses, like the knockout, like the drifts, you want to wait until the winter months, and you can give them a little bit of a haircut then. Um, but they really don't need much pruning. A lot of those new cultivars, they're bred to not really require the maintenance. I'm, 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 I'm just absolutely delighted to have you captured at my table for my radio show, because <laughs> I'm getting all kinds of hints that I've really Excellent. been wanting. <laughs> Gardenias. Yes. I love my gardenias, and I've seen people have beautiful bushy gardenias, and mine are always leggy mess and then mm. die out. So what am I doing wrong? Um, nine times out of ten in the New Orleans area, it's the soil pH, and you need to fertilize with something clay, that'll clay, lower. Clay. Yep, it'll lower the pH. Naturally, our pH in the city of New Orleans is about a seven to a seven point four. Gardenias really love, believe it or not, a four point seven five. To about a 5.5 so very acidic soil and you can acidify the soil they make a lot of products they're usually marketed for gardenias camellias blueberries things that are very acid loving but wouldn't wouldn't it just be i mean i have a you know you know we have what at least two leaf drops mm -hmm. from the oak trees are those are they're not acid enough uh it's not enough um a lot of people okay. think mulching with pine needles or pine bark would acidify the soil too um what they found in trials with asparagus which also loves acidic conditions is it's very trace amounts of acid it's not enough to effectively lower it from uh -huh. a seven into a five um, uh -huh. but the addition of elemental sulfur really helps you get one of those um, bags of fertilizer specifically marketed for azaleas camellias gardenias, blueberries, things that are very acid-loving. Oh, okay. So Usually it works for all that. that. Yeah. Well, that doesn't sound that hard to do. Nope. Okay, I can maybe do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Uh, let's see. We've done plants in summers, dried wet, um, storms, season, palms, salt water. Mm. Salt water is an issue for me because when everybody else was having to 
rebuild and when we thankfully did not get flooded here mm-hmm. in Tremay, especially on Esplanade Ridge, yeah. um, we um, put in a pool, mm-hmm. especially because my husband really can't negotiate the streets that well anymore. So um, I'm always worried when it rains a lot and the pool's getting up to the top that um, I don't want to have that salt water mm-hmm. uh, wash into the pool. Am I right to worry about that? or? Uh, well, it depends on how often it's happening. Um, with salt buildup in soils, that can be quite toxic to most landscape plants unless they're specifically adapted for salt conditions. But living where we are, we get so much rain, it leaches that salinity out of the soil pretty quickly. It effectively flushes it away. That's so good yeah. to know. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm always, you happens. know, we're always running out in the middle of the night when mm-hmm. we can trip so easily because all the, yeah. the, you know, the patio is kind of a nightmare. It's not exactly um, yeah. well-behaved as you were using the we, word before. Where we see salt buildup in soils, it's typically like over in St. Tammany Parish. They're getting constant spray from the waves 24-7 almost. Uh, yeah. um, but mm-hmm. with a saltwater pool, really... What I would worry more about is splashing the salt water onto the leaves. That yeah, can that cause doesn't some happen. I keep people from yeah. jumping in as much as I can. <laughs> and it is, you know, like all my friends' little babies have learned how to swim. Like, <laughs> Fantastic. Because like, I believe in sharing. You know, when I grew up, I didn't have a pool, and then yeah. I was, went to my friends. So, um, okay. Anything I didn't think of asking? Because we covered a lot of territory. Yeah, that's great. Um, I would say with chlorine pools, um, same thing. You're not really going to burn a lot of plants unless it's constant. Um, Occasionally we get calls and we see a lot of burned back plants on the edge, and it's usually a house with a lot of kids that are splashing. Uh, Yeah, yeah. and Mm -hmm. that can be a problem. But with Mm -hmm. saltwater pools, they're usually pretty pretty easygoing with plants. Mm -hmm. I I just thought of one more, and um, and this is we're getting close to um, the end of our time, but – Iron plants. Yeah. I, I I always hated them because they were always such They're a everywhere. mess. <laughs> yeah. No, they just always they brown out so badly. Mm-hmm. So finally, I just happened to have a wonderful young woman who's been working with me lately who's been taking out the old stuff. Yeah. Yep. And then it seems like the new stuff loves it's that, raining. and this yeah. it just pops out. Yeah, iron plant, cast iron plant, aspidistra. Um, it was used as a parlor plant by the Victorians a lot, but it's a fantastic deep shade ground cover here in New Orleans. And it really does benefit from some regular maintenance, even if once a year you go and you weed whack it down. That new growth is there, it's waiting, or you can selectively prune out those old brown leaves, the ones that are maybe kind of crusted over or ripped. Um, We see that a lot. Just go in with a pair of hand pruners. It's very forgiving. Give it a haircut, and those new ones will be there in about a week. I just was amazed when I saw that happen. (laughs) So what did I tell you guys? He said that this woman knows a lot, and uh, we just covered a lot of territory. Any closing thoughts that I didn't think of? Thanks for having me on. We'll have you back in the fall when we go into the fall season, and we can talk about uh, what happens then. So thank you very much, Anna Timmerman with LSU Ag Center. Mm -hmm. Got it right. Thank you. And now, my friends, Tony Morrison's unbelievably prescient words on race. Oppressive language does more than represent violence. It is violence. Does more than represent the limits of knowledge. It limits knowledge. Whether it is obscuring state language or the faux language of mindless media, whether it is the proud but calcified language of the academy 
or the commodity-driven language of science, whether it is the malign language of law without ethics or language designed for the estrangement of minorities, hiding its racist plunder in its literary cheek. It must be rejected, altered, and exposed. It is the language that drinks blood, laps vulnerabilities, tucks its fascist boots under crinolines of respectability and patriotism as it moves relentlessly toward the bottom line and the bottomed-out mind. So I have Anna Timmerman here with me today, who is... The following program is a paid program that doesn't... This is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations coming to an end on WBOK, and I will visit with you again next week.